Allison, I, you know, I'm someone who loves trivia. So, you know, I'm always seeking out new trivia to share with you for kind of no reason. And I came across, um, and you know, it's a piece of trivia I'd love to just quiz you on. Is that cool? Yeah, I'm ready. So as you know, and as we've covered on this show, Julia Roberts was kind of foundational in creating the Felicity movie. But did you know that she was set to star in a movie set in American history around the same time that she got involved with Felicity? I didn't. Was it a Miss Merriman biopic? Nope. Oh, um, was it the Carrie Nation story? I would love to see that on <laughs> oh the big God, screen. Oh my God, I would love to see her swing an axe. It sadly was not. Um, was it Frances Willard? I would love that for her, but no. Am I am I in the right territory? <laughs> no. That's so interesting. Okay, I can think of a few other people that I would love to see. Like, where's the Frances Perkins biopic? Where's like another Eleanor rendition? Like, am I kind of in the right? Say Eleanor. No. No. Sorry. Um, Harriet Tubman. Okay, so Harriet Tubman is a famous short African American woman, great American hero. What? Like, how does this get from there to Mystic Pizza? welcome everyone welcome to american girl the podcast where we're reliving the american girl series book by book i'm mary i'm allison and we're back with you now to discuss happy birthday kirsten you know i love a birthday story as a leo allison I do too, and I was promised a springtime story, even though this story is set in June of 1845, but I can forgive that. Yeah, this book is set at what time? It's springtime, question mark? So when we started with Kirsten, it was 1854, but we are now fully in 1855 because she is turning 10 years old. That's right. That's correct. You know, I was reflecting back on this time that when I turned 10, it was 1996 and the Atlanta Summer Olympics were happening and I had a, a Summer Olympic birthday party at my house. That's lovely. You know, it was kind of the same outdoor fun, but no quilting. Well, this book came out about three months prior to my birth, which I think is maybe coincidental, but I'm also very glad that I was born in the same age of Kirsten. We'll delve into this quite deeply because this book was rather shocking. Like it came to us in a busy week. Honestly, the first page says tornado exclamation point. And you think like, well, you know, where can we really go from there? And like, I'm just going to quote one of my favorite films of all time, which is Shutter Island. Oh god! When he's told you're a rat in a maze, that was me reading this book. What? Like I thought... <laughs> I was navigating the corners correctly and I would turn a corner and there would be like another shock. Like this book is at terms heartfelt, harrowing, hazardous, happy. You know, it's like a full range of emotion. And also like, I didn't know if we would survive this book in the same way that like we might ask existentially, did Helen Hunt ever actually survive Twister? No. Did anyone in this book survive a tornado? I don't know. But- we're here. We're going to try to get through this. I'm here for you. Before we do that, I do think we should check in about the historical shows that we've been watching. So I watched, I'm still watching Pioneer Quest. I'm in extremely deep. I don't even know, like, I don't have words, but if you are not watching this show with me, please put your life on hold. Jump on Amazon Prime. Watch Pioneer Quest. 
I've been kind of concerned because I keep thinking like increasingly I'm only going to hear from you via Pony Express (laughs) because every now and then you're like picking things up from this program and I just don't want to hear that you and Anna are going to start your life together in a tent. Oh my God. Okay. Let me stop you right there. That would never happen. I am so horrified watching this show at the conditions. As you know, I do not want to live in a world without my moonlight path. I have very intricate beliefs about hygiene insofar as I think it should exist. I think people should bathe regularly. I celebrate indoor plumbing. And on this show, it's like you watch them build a privy. You are watching them sweat as they're laboring literally sun up to sundown. And it's you're you're telling yourself there is no deodorant here. No. I mean, that's what I'm watching. And oh my God, though, the most horrifying part of this show, and this might, I know that you're like a 19th century lady and you're someone of, and I don't want to say you're a prude, but like you do not like controversial talk. So I will just sort of like say this in veiled ways. There's two couples and they have to share a tent for like three months. They're there for a year total. They have to share a tent until they can start building small log cabins for each of them. And they have the producers have no chill. And when they get them in testimonial, they're like, hey, so like, when are you guys having sex? And then they're like, oh, well, we hear the other couple have like we get up and they leave the tent immediately. And like we have time alone. And then later we hear noises and we try to ignore what those noises are. And then but then we're, we're forced to listen because we sort of want to. And I'm like, I have never been so horrified in my life. I just feel like there's no reason for this. I think that's where my capacity to continue watching that show, and I am not above this genre, as I will explain in a moment, Mm -hmm. is I was like, there's no reason for this level. Like, the tent was kind of just too far for me. And at one point, the the youngest couple, the wife of whom is only described as a, quote, former college field hockey player, that it's like almost (laughs) bachelor-level occupation descriptions, (laughs) like twin. She and her husband, they have a, like... Call, come to Jesus meeting with the producer and they're like these two not taking it seriously enough they're like they're having too many visitors from the Hutterites next door who come and h- help them but admittedly they're living with very limited technology themselves but they're like you never would have had this many visitors in this period you would have mm-hmm. had to be alone and you're afraid to be alone and the other one's like the other wife is like I don't have a friend here and she points at both of them she's like I don't have a friend here and I'm like, it's this so is so real. Like, this is nuts. It reminds me of like early seasons of the real world, but with massive hygiene issues. I, so, I'm spellbound. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know what's right with me anymore. I'm spellbound. But you're watching a different one. Well, we're in a dip. We're in the worst part of the year, which is when we have neither Bachelor nor Bachelorette nor Bachelor in Paradise. Correct. So we're in kind of like a dark time. Like I know that the solstice was invented so that people could cope with winter. I think what we've turned to instead is like early aughts reality shows. Mm -hmm. And I've been watching Victorian Slumhouse. Yeah. So I've been getting some text updates from you with screenshots with very little context, except you saying, I love this show. I'm obsessed. This is me. Yeah. So there's like a few different characters. There's one named Allison with whom I feel a special kinship. And there's a part of the show where they have um, like middle class contemporary people tour through the house just as middle and upper class people toured through slums in the late 19th century. Basically, the woman has gone like full Willy Wonka grandpa and just like plops herself down in the bed and won't get up. And the landlord is like, hey, you kind of need to perform a little bit. Like, we're trying to make this tour work so we can make some money. And she says, like, you know, I don't want to be looked at. 
And he gestures towards the crowd that is taking her photo and says, she didn't mean to be rude. And she just deadpan turns to him and says, I did. (laughs) And the camera pans away. Wow. They go through different sort of iterations of the same process. And part of why they do that is they move through the decades. And when one of the families has an opportunity to run a sweatshop, the woman who is kind of like the head of the family gets so quickly out of pocket and out of control. They have to pull her aside and do a genealogical intervention. And they're like, you know, you're being really harsh. Like we're afraid that, you know, the people in your charge are not going to be able to eat. They're not meeting their quotas. And they pull her into a research room and they show her that her great grandfather was actually working in a sweatshop for many years. And they were like, does this change your mind? And she has this like immediate come to Jesus where she's like, how could I do this? And she like calms way down on the standards. But it's it's amazing. Oh, my God. I do need to I need to see this. And thank you to all of our listeners who have been sending me through DMs and and emails and whatnot. There's so many shows in this genre to to check out that I can easily spend the rest of my year doing this. And I likely will. And I have no apology about that. Although I will say that now the crown is back. So yes, have a lot of competing things going on. You haven't started yet. Have you? I haven't because it's really hard to explain what it means to me. The fact that the lead was also the female lead on Broadchurch, it's it's too much. It is. And she's very good. I know she's good. I don't doubt that for a second. I'm just like concerned there's going to be a lot of Philip talk. So I just need to be prepared. I did offer you a trigger warning last night that I watched an episode in which Philip has a midlife crisis and the moon landing is like his obsession to deal with that. And I knew that that would be triggering for you. So I just had to let I had to let you know. I think what's going to be increasingly upsetting is they're going to have to make Charles a more relevant character once he's not a child, and nobody really wants that. I don't think anybody wants that. If anything, I want more of um, Princess Anne. Princess Anne has very little speaking roles in The Crown, but she just sort of serves great eye work in every scene she's in, and I respect that, where she kind of knows, like, I will never be able to do anything. Like, I'm very close to power, but I will never have it, like Princess Margaret. And sort of in the show and in life, she kind of just takes what she can get and makes the most of it, and I I basically am enjoying that. But there's also a Philip's mother is Mm. a chain-smoking Greek Orthodox nun, and she's a revelation, that's all I'll say. I think there's been so many nice surprises, but I think I'm still mourning Claire Foy's hair being out Mm. of my life because it was such an important model for me. (laughs) Which part? Before the haircut or after? All of it. So, I mean, just the way that she inhabits like what is both a very matronly, but I think also very stylish and flippy look. I just like it. Yeah. Well, and it's hard because the period that they're covering in season three, there's not a ton for the queen to be doing. I was flashing back, though. Remember that birthday I had and you took me to see that play with Helen Mirren, the film of it? Oh, yes, I do. It's excellent. It's called, I don't remember. It's not the Queen because that's... The audience? The audience, yes. That was phenomenal. Oh, my God. Heavily recommend this. Highly recommend it. Very, very good. But I think the Prime Minister, um, who has two non-consecutive times in office, is in this one. And so I was thinking back to that film and it's interesting to compare the two because obviously the play makes you see that she really respected him and they had like a real friendship. 
which they kind of hint at in The Crown, but I would like to know more information. So, I mean, I just read a Princess Margaret bio, which kind of didn't help at all, except that she was allegedly not that bright and not that charming, and the show kind Mm -hmm. of presents her as such in very key moments, which is sort of interesting, but... Anyway, I'm going to keep at it. I think part of what makes that show fascinating is it raises the question of like, you could be one of the most powerful people in the world to a certain extent with the role that you've been given in life, but you can also still feel like you don't have any friends. 100%. And that's so powerful. Well, and friendship is such a big issue in this book and in The Crown that you're kind of, it's a big issue for me in life and in things I like to read about. So it is something I am constantly thinking about watching The Crown because it's really a thing they all have in common. The thing that they all desperately want is the thing they refuse to give each other, which is friendship, both mother and son, husband and wife. So it, it is interesting. And of course, we get friendship all over the place in this book amongst 500 other things. We also get a crown. Okay, so speaking of flower crowns, let's get into the book, and we will get into our conversation in a rapid recap right after this break. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So in this, our fourth book, we are getting a springtime story about Kirsten, and we learn that exciting new things are coming to the Larson's farm in Minnesota in the springtime. This includes a big new barn and a tiny new baby. But changes bring new worries and more work for Kirsten, too. First, she is afraid for mama's health. Then caring for a baby keeps her so busy that her life seems to be nothing but chores. Soon Kirsten doesn't even have time to help with the surprise she and her friends are planning for their teacher, Miss Winston. And when she has to miss school to help out at home, she worries that her friends will forget her. But Kirsten's hard work is rewarded and her 10th birthday becomes a celebration of family and friendship. I'm going to say this. We have learned about five different key plot points just in that description, but more things than that happen in this book. That's true. There's events flying at you left and right in this book. And some things that we should have been told about before that we have not been told about. Correct. So, I mean, you were alluding to tent situations on your Prairie Time show. Which you refuse to speak about in language other than that. I respect (laughs) that. Continue. Well, I learned from the best. I learned from Mama Larson in this book. Who knew what was going on behind the scenes? We had, you mentioned because of the way that I sort of misspoke at the end of the last episode, you said, are the Larsons expecting a child? And I said, oh, no, no, no. I mean, Kirsten's birthday. No, no, no. Now she's sharing a birthday month because she gets a baby sister in this book. 
I was in shock. We got that news on page seven, and I, uh, f- we should have known about that, right? Like, even thinking back to the winter. Okay, and what was the context in which we learned that information as if we weren't shook up enough? We learned this because they're all casually doing chores. They're outside because finally it's springtime, so they're all out, like, beating the rugs and doing laundry and this and that and then the aunt is like oh i think like a tornado is coming we all need to get into the root cellar immediately and kirsten sent to get the other kids and they're all in the root cellar with miss winston it's like i'm sorry can we take a beat it's like we're in page six and there's a possible tornado watch part of what happens i'm gonna call it a bunker because that's just language i feel more comfortable with sure Because there's a lot of Kimmy Schmidt vibes in the first 20 pages. We're in the bunker and basically casually, they're like, oh, we, you know, in the way that only like young people can do. They're like, oh, Miss Winston, that's so interesting. You didn't grab your jacket. You, um, instead of a coat, you grabbed a quilt. They're like, that's quaint, you know, because she's a Mainer. And she's like, yeah, by the way, it just represents everything important I've ever had in my life. And so then we're zooming way in on the quilt as like a coping mechanism. I'm like, I'm sorry, can we have some reflection on the natural disaster or the pregnancy that was unplanned? No. No. We get no in an emergency, you get no time to adjust. And we weren't given any time to adjust either. No. And in fact, it was like somebody grabbed the family Bible, which also acts as the family history archive because everyone has their birth dates written in there. And I'm thinking to myself, we're going to have a new name in this book pretty soon. And we've not been told this is even afoot. No. Something that we notice, I think, I that really struck me a lot, and there's a few different places where this becomes clear, as Kirsten and her family have settled more and more onto life on the farm, the gender segregation has also really sharpened in, in her life. And there's really a lot about how much her world is focused on being with women in the family and even being with her teacher who lives with them. And there's several references to sort of like men and men's work. And even in that early introduction, like the raising of a barn is put on the footing of the child arriving. And I was like, these things are separate and not equal. One of those things will likely not kill the chief maker. Right. Not true of both. Um, I think that's a really excellent point, And it's something I noticed as well. And it also seems that the teacher being in the root cellar is an interesting place for the, it's an interesting move for the author because the teacher is kind of allowed to be us in some ways, like sort of an adult who like is seeing this for the first time or experiencing it. So you have like an adult experiencing this weather change or weather pattern that they have no experience with at all in their life, but then also children. And they Mm -hmm. respond in really kind of interesting ways, which is that Anna, um, it doesn't seem to dampen her at all. She doesn't seem afraid. If anything, it's kind of like she's excited because now she's in this enclosed space with Miss Winston, who she's been kind of obsessed with for most of the books in a way that you can kind of recall, or maybe maybe you were this person who really admired a teacher when you were a child and you know uh, took a great interest in them, almost like wanting to be them. So she takes this opportunity to ask Miss Winston, like, what's up with the quilt? And then they get the story about how it's <laughs> been a gift from her family and friends when she was moving to remember them by. It has literally pieces of cloth from their clothes, from her clothes, sewn into it with messages written on the quilt. Um, And it's called a friendship quilt. So, but it's just, it is really interesting that there's no conversations even about fear. Um, And there's children there. And you would think that the parents, even Kirsten's mom, knowing that this would be the first time she would experience this particular fear. And we saw her battle weather in the last book. This is a completely different occurrence. Mm. 
And the mom doesn't think to say anything to Kirsten or to the other children, and neither do the other adults. Not really. No. And it's kind of presented as an opportunity for them to get closer to each other, which happens. It does happen. But I think it also speaks to the ways in which childhood was understood in this period, which is that children are still pretty much in this period little adults. Mm -hmm. So I think there isn't too much of language that's meant to kind of pacify children or like not baby talk, but talk to kind of get down to somebody's level. If anything, they're just sort of like, this is happening. It's happening to all of us. And we're just moving on. I feel like if Felicity were in this bunker, there would have been like every order of hijinks and there would have been a lot of whining. Yep. And I feel like because we're seeing it through like the crisp blue eyes of Kirsten, there's like a different sense of wonder and curiosity that's coming out to play. And there's more of a fixation on like how this is playing out with Miss Winston and the aunt than what's happening outside. That's entirely true. If Felicity had been in there, they mentioned at one point that the root cellar normally holds all of their food throughout the winter. And at this point now, there's only a few like wrinkled apples left, which they ate for lunch because they couldn't go back to the house. I was freaked out by that. (laughs) I can't do a wrinkled apple. I was freaked out just before we recorded this because I had to have leftovers. I don't know if you're listening. Like, you know, this is true. It's not my journey, okay? (laughs) I know. But like, you could see Felicity just being like, oh, sorry, like gave those apples to my horse. (laughs) <laughs> sorry you know what no, i mean i have to say like blackie and penny are on really different trajectories in life i'll say yeah like partially because there's never really been a fear that someone would kidnap blackie but nonetheless like kirsten's horse is is living very differently yeah and probably a good way i mean you know if felicity if i had to live with felicity it would probably be a really tough life long term yeah But we're learning that, you know, part of where this closeness is coming into, like, Kirsten is coming a lot closer to her mother, much like, again, a very, very similar arc to what we had with Felicity, where there is a a sickness and there is a childbearing moment and there's like a closeness that's developing. This time, instead of apple butter, it's rotten apples, but like close enough. (laughs) And I think we're kind of also starting to see like there's an arc that we didn't get as children, which is these books are showing you like ways to step up and take responsibility within a family. Right. And it's interesting that we didn't get this with Felicity, which is set in an earlier time period. But it's very clear in Kirsten's world that she's going to be expected to be like mom 2.0. So she's already giving a lot of her time over to making um, baby clothes for the soon to arrive baby and diapers. And she sort of has like a childlike innocence or ignorance about why the baby might need more than three cloth diapers, which she will soon find out, (laughs) you know, tragically. But um, it's interesting that Felicity, we never get those conversations about her having to take part in labor to prepare the household for the arrival of a new baby. And in part, that could be because there's an enslaved woman who lives in her home. Um, Maybe the mom is doing that sewing herself and not entrusting it to Felicity, who struggles with her sampler, as we recall. But You know, Kirsten is also described as both learning to sew. She's just learning to sew. But even as she's learning, it has to be practical. There can be no – the mom pushes against this friendship cold idea because she says, you need to be making practical things for the family. You need to be making baby clothes. We don't time for you to kind of mess around even with like a sampler in the way that Felicity, because of her privilege, um, was allowed to kind of do sewing as a lark to prepare herself to be this genteel lady and catch, you know, a husband – Kirsten, it has nothing to do with that. It's literally like there will be another new member of this family very soon. None of us even knew mom was pregnant. 
Mom didn't know. Mom didn't know. But, you know, we need these items now. So it, it is a much more practical focus. And in a way, like you're kind of living with Kirsten processing that too. Like, what does that mean for me? How do I fit into this family? Well, and she so admires, she doesn't love Miss Winston the way Anna does. Like, who could? Right. right. Not Amos. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we wish. I think something that's so, so brilliant, and we talked about this with Josefina, is the way that textiles, just as one example, are seen as like, a legitimate way in this book that women tell stories to and about each other and ways that they share memories and kind of capture something about themselves. And it really is a beautiful scene where Miss Winston is recounting how that was pieced together for her by a group. And spoiler, throughout the rest of the book, Kirsten is bummed because she has to care for her baby sister and do practical sewing. And she thinks she's missing out on making a quilt for Miss Winston with the group, but they're actually making a quilt for her birthday. And when it's gifted to her, she sees like all the like wonderful love that was put into this project for her. It's really beautiful. It's really, really beautiful. And I'd seen a friendship quilt in a museum a long time ago. I'm not sure. I can't, I've been trying to remember all day where I actually saw this, but we found another one online that we'll link to. Um, but it, it is such a beautiful – I love that these books honor women's ways of knowing and of telling stories and alternate ways of thinking about recording one's history. So it's not just something written on a page, but it could be you know, a woven blanket, as in Josefina's case, or in this case, a friendship blanket. And it does make you think about like what is the material culture of friendship? You know, what's the material culture of friendship in the 19th century that Kirsten and her peers and her parents would have known that we might think about? And then what's the material culture of friendship today? Oh, my God. I just got such a sad thought. Like, what if there was a piece of Marta's, like, shroud? (gasps) Allison, oh, my God. I cannot think about that right now. Oh, my God. What if her mom had the foresight and she was like, this little bit of muslin is for me? (gasps) But too also, far. what if she was, well, not too far. I mean, it's the 19th century. Everyone's obsessed with death. But what if the mom was like, I don't know how this disease spread, but I'm willing to roll the dice and give you this cloth <laughs> to put it in your yeah. quilt? Yes. She's like, just don't sleep on that part. We don't know. <laughs> She's like, we can't say we can't for say. sure. We can't say for no. sure. Oh, my God, Allison, that was dark. Why did you take me to that place? So, I mean, I felt... I also remember like there's different aspects. Like I know when we get to Molly, something I do remember is like their darning socks, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a textile story in hers as well. Um, I mean, this was kind of interesting for me because I have done quilting. Like I quilted with my mother and my sister when I was a child. Um, And the gift that my mother gave me when I got married was a homemade quilt. And like I've grown up with like homemade, like very nice quilts and like quilts being given as gifts. And one of the things I was given when I moved into my house from, again, my family was my great-grandmother's crazy quilt. What is that? Sorry, what does that mean? No, it's a great great question. Um, They are things now that people really, I think, generally regard differently. You would think of it as like folk art. So I'll, I'll upload a picture, but it's basically... All different little scraps of different kinds of fabric, different patterns. The the craziness is that it's just little squares of of different things. Mm. So like a log cabin follows a perfect angled pattern. That's what my marriage quilt is. This quilt is something that my grandmother or sorry, great grandmother would have just thrown together. It wasn't something for show. It's a crazy quilt. And 
now a lot of these are highly collectible or really looked upon because instead of having like a recurring pattern, I have literally 50 different little samples of textiles on this very small quilt. Hmm. So that's those are those are different. I like that this is that's interesting. I'm I'm jealous that you have those quilts in your life, but you can think about the stories that they tell or that they hold even if they're not explicit, but also the meaning that's been invested by the various people who've owned them in your family as they pass them down and Thinking about material culture, friendship, and family in the past, like thinking about other things that could have been in this book. I mean, we could have had a story about letter writing, Mm -hmm. notes passed between friends. We know that that's obviously something that went on. I'm sort of happy that we didn't get hair stuff, (laughs) Um, even though that was something of this period that someone would have had. Like Miss Winston could have had like a lock of people's hair from Maine. Okay, you give Singing Bird a pair of shears, and she's chopping those braids off. They're coming right off. <laughs> she's They're not, coming she's not back. right off. She's not holding back. Maybe some of our listeners did that to their Kirstens. I hope not. But, like, if they felt no. the need to take it to a bob, like, that's fine. Like, basically, I'm constantly looking for opportunities to bring up hair art as a kind of test of, like, are these people surrounding me as eccentric about like Victoriana as I am, or I'll be like, Probably oh not. yeah, we could, like we could just make like a hair wreath or something like he, he, you know, and <laughs> you just see how it goes. I went on a tour of a house museum in Victoria, Canada this summer because I was there taking a class. And this is what I chose to do on my one free day. Like I went on this Victorian mansion house tour. And in one of the bedrooms, the, of course, like the widow, the the man who funded the house dies before he can move in which is actually excellent because he was a very mean person to his employees. So his widow Mm -hmm. lives there with a giant hair wreath on her bedroom wall that she stares at all day. And we go in and the tour guide's like, bet you can't guess what this is all about. And I was like, I know it's a hair wreath, so don't waste my time. I just need to know whose hair it is. (laughs) Yes. Right now. Have I humble bragged on this show before about having touched a bracelet that had George and Martha Washington's hair? I was just going to bring that up, actually, because you haven't done you haven't talked about it, but I was going to give you that chance. That's actually shocking because usually it's like, oh, have you known me a month? You've heard me (laughs) mention this casually. It's on your resume, so I'm not sure why you haven't mentioned (laughs) it on the show. That's so true. That's so true. Um, I feel like Kirsten would not only be like a good subject for that. Like she has these beautiful locks. I feel like she's very attentive to her hair for a person who can probably never wash it. Like with her flower crown. I really can't take that on right now. You know how I feel about that. But getting back to Washington for one second, before we forget, we move off this. I did some research in um, Chronicling America. And if folks aren't familiar with that really wonderful resource, it was created by the Library of Congress. And it's a complete scan of all the newspapers in their collection, which are keyword searchable. And you can filter by date and by state and region and so on. So I looked in Minnesota in 1854 and 1855. And I was looking up references to birthdays because I needed to know, you know, what people in Minnesota were saying. The only birthday, pretty much, other than a few um, different elite folks, the only birthday publicly celebrated is George Washington, speaking of your close personal friend. (laughs) 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 But I think, I mean, that's not too surprising to me because we know that George Washington was practically, was, you know, 
elevated to almost God status during his life, never mind after his death. So, and birthdays were not something that was, were that openly celebrated. So it's interesting that we get an entire book on birthdays for really a lot of these girls set before the 20th century, because this wasn't necessarily a thing. Mm. And yet I, I have to say like, cause it's something we've sort of like criticized, like remember how bad Josefina's birthday party was? I'm not even going to call it a party, but in certain ways it's like, there's a need to have a birthday because that's what's prescribed for the series. At the same time, they do keep it very muted, which is accurate. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, that's a really good point. I wanted to sort of share something, you know, so I read you the front part of the book and we've talked about this before, but something that I found really kind of striking, we've been reading first editions of these books. So we, we've made a point to read the first editions put out by Pleasant Company and I wanted to return to how this is described on the back. And it's sort of the the little tagline that's imploring you to read this book. You can share their worlds, the friends they make, the struggles and successes they have in school, the excitement of their Christmas secrets, their birthday celebrations, and their summer adventures. You'll see that some things in their lives are very different, but others haven't changed at all. And that's sort of the charge, you know, that Pleasant is kind of giving as she's like, you know, throwing Little House into a fireplace behind Janet Shaw. She's like, do better. No. Um, but the more I thought about this book in particular, the more that that really struck me because I wasn't feeling like I was very bogged down in the particulars of her birthday. I felt like with Josefina, there was such an attempt to get things right in terms of accuracy mm. that I didn't always feel like I had fully fleshed out characters. And Kirsten feels more dynamic to me in certain ways, even in the parts that are cringy, which we can, because there is a few cringy pages in this. Yes. And the way that she relates to her friends and the way that she is just like so pleasantly surprised at this end of the book by this very beautiful thing that her friends do for mm. her. I feel like that's where the pleasant charge in the back of trying to give you a world that's different but themes that are essential, I was like, yeah, this book absolutely hit that for me. It absolutely does. And and hearing you read that and, and speaking on it, it does make me think about a major through line in this book that is really not about her birthday at all, as you're saying. It's really a story about Kirsten just wanting to feel seen and acknowledged in this new world where she finds herself. So it's first within her family. She's desperate to make sure that her she's so scared, it seems like, that her parents and her mother in particular not forget her birthday. Mm. And she's not speaking about it. These are like private reflections. We're kind of in her head with her as she's thinking, like, I think my mom's going to forget my birthday. And she's sort of very kind of stoically preparing herself for that. Like, well, mom's having a baby and all this stuff, and I'm working so hard to prepare. The focus is really on that. So it's okay. Like, she'll probably forget my birthday. And then it was actually a really moving scene. But her mother is in bed at this point, very close to giving birth. And she kind of just brings Kirsten's birthday up and, and reminds her like, no, I haven't forgotten. And in fact, I was just thinking this morning about the day you were born. Oh, and she yeah. tells Kirsten the story of the day she was born. And it was honestly so moving for me because it's such a human moment. And I know like most people can think about their relationship with their parents and the moments when your parents tell you the story of the day you were born, you feel so acknowledged, right? Because it's literally the story of you, your life. 
um, but also with her friends. I mean, this is really a story about friendship, too, and wanting to feel seen and acknowledged by her friends and worrying that they'll forget about her. And we haven't talked about this new character that we have in the book named Mary Stewart. Yeah. Who I'm just putting an APB out. Is she the ancestor (laughs) of Martha Stewart? Yeah. Period. Question. I think maybe, but she's described as appearing with a face like a, quote, sleepy puppy. And, you know, that was tough to read, but um, (laughs) (laughs) that was tough to read. But Mary does say something that she finds um, moving and important, which they start to talk about making this friendship quilt for Miss Winston. And um, they're basically like, we can't get this done in time, like this and that. And um, Mary's making a point about um, this quilt in the process. And she says on page 20, quote, you don't understand being finished with the quilt isn't the best part. Making the quilt is the best part. Anyway, that's like, that's what I like best. Sewing it, all of us together. And it's this really beautiful scene, I think, that kind of, builds and it lets you have such a big payoff when Kirsten gets the quilt and realizes that they've Mm -hmm. all done it for her is that it's really not the product that matters it's really not about the quilt it's about the process and that's such kind of like a cringy saccharine thing but it is it's also such a real thing and I can remember this in my life and in so many different things but like and not to get super cheesy but like, I really enjoy this show. Like, I do not sit and listen to the episodes. It's really about the process. Like, you and I do this together. That's why we started this show. So we could Wait, spend... you don't listen? No. Oh, my God, no. Are you serious? I edit it. I've heard this show, like, I've probably heard it three times before it comes out. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to. I sit and stare at a poster of myself on the wall, and I'm like, God, wow, Mary. Um, no, no, I do I not feel listen. Like this- why? Oh, happy. you do listen. Well, I know you listen, but you haven't heard it because I've edited no, it's it. Different. It's, yeah, different. Different. <laughs> it's different. It's different. It's different. It would be weird if I edited this and then it was like, I'm going back for a fourth dip in. I need it. <laughs> um, but it's really about the process for me. It's not about the product. And I think so many things in life, whether it's friendship or family, it's really about the process. It's not about like the end result. It's about spending that time together and those connections. So I think it's really a story about being acknowledged and and see, feeling seen. And I'm sure that resonates with, you know, not just little girls, but boys and adults too, right? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Although I do listen. It's different. It's different. I can tell no, you're going to no, make this such a thing now. This is not about you. It's not weird no. that you listen. No, no, no. I totally get that. And Do we you? had kind of <laughs> we had kind of mentioned this before, um, but we mentioned that you know her birthday is inscribed in the family Bible, which was also just a smart way to get that intel out because you it. need to know by page six that she's a Gemini. That that was tough to learn, but you it know was. we're living with it. But it actually but, does track before we. Yeah learn more about the actual date i just want to say that if there's any astrology experts please write to us but my sense is her gemini-ness shows up actually in her friend life oh yeah where she's like i'm one person with singing bird i'm another person (laughs) with my school friends i'm another person with dad on this like where i'm like out of left field handling like crazy weather events like every book now (laughs) yeah um but we had talked about how with Josefina's cover and with Felicity's cover, you know, when they're learning a lesson, the writing is privileged, right? And Tia Dolores has all these secrets that are written in her secret book. On page six, we learn about the family Bible where things are recorded. And on page seven, it's just this beautiful, beautiful balance. They're all touching the quilt because they're obsessed with Miss Winston. 
And they're saying like, oh, how did this come about? And she says, every time I look at my quilt, it's like getting a letter from home. And it's a really beautiful way, too, of reminding us that people who maybe didn't leave behind written records left behind other records. I happen to work really close to a quilt museum. And one of the things I always say to people is you need to think of it as an art and a history museum, not as a museum about a particular kind of textiles, because the way the labels and the way that it's set up, it's about the story of it in the same way that you don't just look at a painting to admire oil or acrylic. Right. But I think by bringing up painting, too, and and thinking about like women artists, um, generally speaking, working in textiles or paints. There's such a long history of demeaning women's contributions, both as historians, as makers, as artists. So a lot of textiles, I think, have been hiding in plain sight, so to speak, because they're beautiful works of art. But folks see their utilitarian purpose and are like, oh, well, that's not artistic. But even in painting, I don't know why, but during this book, I was thinking about in the last book about Grandma Moses (laughs) and her (laughs) and her whole trajectory, too, which is that. You know, a lot of people do not respect her and did not respect her because of her age and the fact that, you know, she was a woman and whatever. But and people thought her paintings were simplistic and like romanticizing a past that never actually existed. Um, And yet, like, you can see the ways that for her, it's a kind of historical record. She was painting Mm -hmm. her childhood um, and recording that in the way that you would with a quill. So I do think it's it is making me reevaluate. I mean, we already know this that um, a lot of women's work has not been valued in the way that it it should have been. But huh? <laughs> who? Um, it is making me go back. Oh my god! Thinking about Grandma Moses one time, I went to this art museum that had a Grandma Moses exhibit, and I was going through it. I'm in this room. I'm looking at the paintings. I'm reading labels and stuff. And this little boy comes in with his grandmother, and she's like, "Wow, isn't this amazing? This woman painted the paintings, and you know, she was just a little bit older than me. Can you imagine that?" And he just turned her, and he was like have you ever done any painting like this? And she was like, well, no. And he's like, (laughs) disgusted. It's also that thing too of like, I love that these young girls took on the really hard project. You know, that, that kind of like audacity of childhood, like, yeah, I can take this on. The girls are like, we have no money. We have no spare supplies. They're like, pull out the scraps. Exactly. And on, and on page nine, actually, Kirsten says, whenever she admired something, or we have the author, right? Whenever she admired something, she would do it herself. So yeah. she's not put off at all when she's, they're like, look, you barely know how to sew. Not a lot of extra scraps going around that aren't being thrown at pioneer diapers. Like <laughs> there are so many barriers to you actually figuring this out. And she's like, watch me, I'm going to do it. And I just, I love that message being in this book for young readers. I think that's just, I don't know. I love that. It brought, it's also like babysitter club vibes. There's this whole generation of books coming out in this moment for young girls that are like, Hey, guess what? Do you think starting a business as like an 11-year-old is out of your depths? Not 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 the case. You can get a dedicated phone line, throw some friends together, rock a couple flyers, change your life. I was speaking the other day about how I had glow-up stars affixed to my ceiling. This all came about because we were talking about canopies and like historic beds. And someone had sent us a cool photo of like their homemade Felicity bed. And I just got talking. It was great. I got talking about this. And I was like, oh, yeah, I had all the stars on the ceiling. But I also was clever enough to put them on top of my canopy bed. So I would see them even 
while I was laying down underneath the canopy, which I thought was pretty clever. It kind of turned into like the way that you were flexing about your moonlight path commitment. I kind of turned into a flex. I was like, I also had a phone where you could see through the clear plastic to all the parts. Oh my God. I always wanted that phone. And people under 25 were unfazed. But my colleague who's also over 30 was like, I wanted that. I was like, yeah, I jealous. I had it. I was like, I had it. I had the stars on the ceiling. I had the stars and bars. I was like, stars on the ceiling, see-through telephone. And when that telephone broke, I got an old-fashioned white Victorian lady phone. Oh, my God. Who are you? <laughs> like, you don't know. There's like a Vanderbilt hyphen with my name, but it's starting to feel that way. It is kind of starting to feel that way. It's going to get harder as time goes on for me to defend that you are actually not that person, but in a way, like, you are that person. I was not allowed to have a phone in my room growing up. So, like, any time I would go to someone's house and they had a phone in their room, I was always like, are you, like, a billionaire? I don't know what's happening. My parents had very few restrictions on us growing up, but they were basically, you cannot have video games on the TV and you may not have a phone in your room, period. That's it. Now, like... It's so true, but it's so profound. Like now the phones are with us so much. It's hard to fathom like in some ways the neatness of the cord. Like the cord tied the phone to the wall and that was that. And now it's like the cord is the constant tether where you can't put your phone down. You're going to make me stay up tonight. That's too intense. No, but it's true. And actually, like working with college students now, there are so many students who are basically addicted to their phones and having to negotiate that boundary in ways that when we were in college, we never had to think about. Yeah. And and even like friendship was very different. Like I used, I didn't start texting until I was in college. And even then it was like very brief, like, oh, are you going to like meet me in person in 10 minutes? And now it's like you have whole relationships over text and it's weird if you see someone too much in person. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's very strange. And I there is a real like line in the sand with a lot of my friends about who's willing to speak on the phone. I love a phone call. You can call me anytime. I'm into it. You hate a phone call to the point that I'm calling you out on this. This was years ago now, but I'm I can like live this moment. (laughs) We were meeting friends of ours to hang out. You were driving up with your husband. You were driving up with your husband. I was calling you because you drove right past me. So I was trying to tell you like, hey, we're over here. Come over here. I watched you pull out your phone, <laughs> see that it was me, and de- deny the call. You did. And immediately we were with friends who are not nearly as intensely codependent as we are. And I immediately was like, I just saw you. And I think I made them uncomfortable because they were like, oh, are they fighting? And I was like, I just watched this. You did. How you dare did. you deny my call? You are not the only person to have watched me from afar, pull out my phone, see a phone call, click the side. It was so dark. It was like your Virgo-ness too, where like I would also meet someone and be like, hi, like this is Allison, my best friend. And you'd be like, this is Mary. She's a friend. And I'd be like, damn, deny my um, call. Like so intense. That was really intense. And I do apologize for that. Also, we were visiting our our great friends, Lindsay and Eric, who are fond listeners of the show. So thank you for being part of that miracle. (laughs) Thank Um, you for being part of that moment and for not judging either of us for, you know, that moment in time. So Kirsten would have really benefited from texting because she gets really disconnected from her friends. And that made me sad. Also, she seems to be outside time in that moment, or maybe it's just the way it's written. But how much time do you think elapsed between... Now, I do not want to actually go over this, but... You were just bringing us to her actual birth date. Did you want to say something about that? 
I do, because I also kind of agree that there was some chronological messiness in this book where it was like, okay, suddenly now it's June, which I kind of wasn't expecting. Yeah, time really flies in this world. Well, time flies when you're riding Blackie. I know that. (sighs) Like a quote Indian? Yes. Yeah. Not great. I I would say that's a cringe factor. Other cringe factor, just not being, you know, being surprised. I just, I guess I would have liked some notice that she was a Gemini, but they never give you that. So (laughs) it's a separate issue. Um, So she shares a birthday with Frank Lloyd Wright, who pioneered the prairie style. That's all I'll say about that. Oh, my God. Do you think she, do you think like Janet did that? Here's what I want you to put together. Okay. Frank Lloyd Wright was born in 1867. Okay. Which means that he is one of two things. He is the love child of Kirsten or the late in life love child of Amos and Miss Winston. Oh my God. It's, I mean, it's been there the whole time. More importantly, Jerry Stiller. Barbara Bush and Joan Rivers all share a birthday with Kirsten. What a transition. There's also a few other prominent Swedish births of around this same time. Okay. But I don't know who they are, so it's not going to be as compelling. One of the most important things that I learned, and there's a direct connection to something you mentioned off air. She shares a birthday with Kanye West, college dropout extraordinaire. What? No. Yeah. Yeah, she does. No. Do you want to share what the connection is to the Kardashian West family? Who between Kirsten? Between this book and what goes on with that family. Right. So just one of the few connections I can actually draw out two or three, but I'll start with this one that I shared off air. Courtney Kardashian, probably one of the most shocking scenes to me of keeping up with the Kardashians. And again, I haven't seen every episode. When she has, I forget which child this is. Do you remember? It's her first one? child. It's oh, okay. Her it's her first child. They show her labor and she literally pulls the child out of herself. Like, first of all, I didn't know that that was anatomically possible. Like, even if you were a yoga practitioner, as I imagine she is. But it was like, oh, my God. Talk about like sisters doing it for themselves. I was like, what the hell? Like, were you even asked to do this? It was just such a power move where she was like, yeah, watch me. And then it's like, boom, out of the womb. And obviously, if you've read this book with us, you know Kirsten's mom, I imagine, gave birth in a very similar way. Yeah. If you've read the book, you know that the mom starts to send out some like distress signals at one part of the day to Kirsten that things aren't going well. Kirsten, in in a series of situations where she's riding Blackie, she's looking for the aunt, she's looking for family. Every man is missing in action for all but one page of this book. They're not available. This is a full-on world of women. Yeah. It's a world of women. There's quilting. Winona Ryder could like drop into this story at any time. Oh my God, Allison. Thank you for saying that quick sidebar. Winona Ryder starred in a movie called How to Make an American Quilt, which I believe is still on Netflix. Yeah. It's basically this book, but set in the 1990s. It's beautiful. If you're listening to this show right now, wherever you are, people listen to us all over the place. No, sure. like someone did write to us and said that they started listening to this show at the beginning of their gestation process and they've since had a child. So like if that doesn't stop you in your tracks, that's a separate issue. Wherever you're listening, if you have a thought about Winona Ryder, any part of her work, or if you have a thought about the 1994 Little Women movie and you're like, okay, but they've heard enough of that, you're dead wrong. Nope. The limit does not exist. 
The limit what, does not exist. What's the one thing you've said it before, but it bears repeating that you would say to Johnny Depp? One owner forever. Yeah, you meant it. I meant he it. I want that tattoo. He got the tattoo, but I'm living it. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's like you moved on. I'm never moving on. It's I'll never. No, I will never move on. I will never stop rooting for her renaissance. I will never stop being angry at Tressa May for putting her in that ad and making her say that stuff. Allison's losing it. You know what I'm talking about. This is wrong. This is wrong. I do. I do. I do. I don't like that. I'm sorry. She probably had to pay legal fees. Like there was probably some real issues there. I don't blame her. The world is insane. Capitalism is wrong. She probably had to make some really tough game time choices. All I'm saying is she's been wronged. We all need to do better by her. If there's some like aspiring screenwriters out there, I just want to empower you. Maybe it's us. I don't even know anymore. Allison's (laughs) crying. Allison, I'm just saying we could do this. Like God, like if Kirsten can make this quilt... I mean, so, so far this episode, we've brought up two women, right? So we have Martha Stewart on the one hand, and we have Winona Ryder on the other hand. And I think what concerns me is they've been punished more by the American legal system than anyone that caused the crash of 2008. That's true. And they both made textiles while doing it. Martha made her prison shawl. I will never forget that. Winona Ryder in this quilting movie. I'm sure she made a lot of quilts in preparation. But I'm just saying, like, I'm sorry, CEO of Wells Fargo, where's your textile history of what you've done? Okay? Yeah, it's it's wrong. It's it's just, uh, it's upsetting. I'm sorry. I'm all fired up now, Allison. I I don't know. I didn't see that coming. Second thing I do want to bring me right back. (laughs) Second connection between the Kanye and Kirsten. Yeah. Kanye, and I don't want to make you emotional bringing this up. Kanye lost his mother in a very tragic plastic surgery gone wrong incident. She's losing it. Stay with me. Something about this book that was also like none of us saw this coming. There's a kind of like it's not even a B plot line. It's kind of like a C or D plot line where Kirsten briefly recognizes that childbirth is dangerous. Yes. And she's like, wait a second. My mom could die. Yes. And it's like I can't listen to that song that Kanye wrote about Donda after she died where he's speaking to her about his daughter. I'm just like too much. Can't do it. But Kirsten gets real existential and is like, wait a second, my mom could die. Childbirth is dangerous. And as we learn and peek into the past, quote, more dangerous, it's more dangerous to have babies in 1854 than it is now, end quote. The peek into the past was like a peek into a coffin. It was dark. They were like, if you liked some of the dark parts of this story and you are nine and a half years old reading this book along with Kirsten, let's talk about mortality rates in the mid-19th century. Are you ready? Um, it was like a catalog of ways children could die and how parents wouldn't do anything because they were like, the best means of safeguarding children is obedience. So they're like, a kid could die, drop in a well. They could be lost in a fire. They could like do this or that. And you're like, oh my God, there are children reading this. There is also something fascinating. So there, there's a bit about toys. Like it, it's not all doom and gloom, but the part that I actually found really, really dark is this. Children in the 1850s never asked themselves, what will I be when I grow up? Girls like Kirsten knew they would be housewives with families like their mothers. Boys like Lars and Peter knew they would be farmers like their fathers. All their childhood experiences had trained them to do these jobs well. And I sort of want to take issue with that for a hot second because I think part of what would have been 
really exciting. And we get like these little glimpses of this in the first book where Kirsten comes to the United States. Mm -hmm. Kirsten lived in a moment where as an ethnically white person, I'm not saying that everything was open to her as a woman, woman, because that's objectively untrue. Mm -hmm. I think hers is the first life that we're coming across where that isn't really fair to say. I'm not saying that she would have said like, which career test should I take to determine like which women's college I should go to. But I think part of what the actual text of the book did really well was to show like she has different interests. Like she really isn't great at reading and writing, but she was really good at inspiring that poem. She's really good at like pulling people together. And she has this really dynamic life that isn't chores. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I think in some ways they have an easier time of selling this claim and peek into the past because they've totally transformed this book into a world of women. Yeah. So I think if we had had more of the brothers and certain like the dad, even particularly the brothers and her male cousins, this is a time when, as you're saying, social mobility was not, you know, assured for anybody. But they could have had different opportunities. Their lives could have looked different than their father's. And in fact, they already do. And we missed yes. that point. Both Kirsten and her brother's lives look very different from their parents. But peek into the past is sort of like obscuring that major difference to say, oh, no, they would have gone right gone right into their parents' roles. Well, they actually haven't done. They've already done something major that their parents, that are going to change the trajectory of their life, it will never be like their parents. Like, buckle up, boys. You're probably serving in the Civil War. Yeah. I didn't want to get there, but it's like, whew. We're living through the Franklin Pierce years, by the way. Nice. I mean. Um, Andrew Jackson actually died on the day that she was born, which I think is lovely. Great. Love that. Love that for everyone involved. Excellent. (laughs) Did you know that Franklin Pierce was called Young Hickory? I'm just like circling that square. (laughs) This is so like. Like, listeners once an episode get this teeny tiny glimpse of, like, when Mary started graduate school, she was, like, very into presidents, very into, like, presidential biography. Campaign biography. That was my first project. By the end, you were like, how can I do a queer analysis of this book made out of human skin? (laughs) That's literally true. (laughs) That's literally true. It was like, you started with, like, traditional (laughs) white male hagiography and, like, unpacking that and by the end you were like did Nazis make people books yeah but also sure people ate books of the bible to feel well and you were like thanks it all makes <laughs> sense to me well to me it's like the through line is identity or at least that's what I tell myself is I've always been fascinated by how people explain themselves to themselves and then how they mm. like explain that ex- how they like externalize that either in memoir which I'm fa- still fascinated by or as you're saying books bound in human skin which makes me sound like a total weirdo but it actually is a really fascinating topic. It's called anthropomorphic bibliopegy, if anyone's interested. So give it a Google and and but just be forewarned that you're gonna see some things that they actually just look like leather bound books. So it's actually not yeah. too shocking. But um every few years a major university library will say, We think we have one in our collections. And it's like, no, it's just cow leather. Thanks. I just don't think it's that weird. I don't think it's that weird because this started as a practice to 
like if the metaphor of like I am bound up in something um, comes from a certain place, like thinking about books as having like invested meaning as objects, they started um, literally with execution sermons being bound in the skin of the person who is executed. That's so bad. That's bad. But it gets worse than that. But you have also um, many medical textbooks bound in the skin of cadavers on which physicians learned. So mm. for to them, it was in some kind of like very more way a tribute to the lives that allowed them to train and become physicians as of course we know the history of medicine in this period and much earlier was much more loosey-goosey before like something like the Flexner report of 1911 which was an audit of all the medical schools in the United States which basically showed that it was a horror show for most places and that's why we have certain standardizations that we live with now but um, if you went to the Muter Museum in Philadelphia which is a museum that Allison actually brought me to for the first time and I love it there it's a museum of a museum of a 19 century medical museum but they have a book bound in the skin of a confederate soldier who mm. died during the civil war and a physician who treated him in a northern hospital bound a think a medical textbook in his skin as a tribute so that's the kind of stuff that you'll find in this history you'll also find some racialized stuff that is really not great and also porn and i'll leave it there you can imagine i don't study necessarily that piece but yeah it is it is something of interest to me of casual interest. Just casual. And and not in terms of a how-to. I just want to no. make that very clear. No. But in more of like, why did people invest this act with meaning and what kinds of meanings did they embed in it? That's it. Well, and, you know, as we were talking about earlier, there's all different ways that people create stories, share stories, and leave pieces of themselves with other people. And the whole reason the quilt is meaningful to Kirsten is not because it's the world's best quilt, but because there are pieces of her friends and things that they own and they cherish stitched into it. Of course. I mean, things only have the meaning that we invest. I talked about my childhood blankie that my grandmother made for me last episode. And, you know, it looks kind of pathetic now because it's so old and ragtag, but it means the absolute world to me because my grandmother made it. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not that dissimilar, I would guess. No. I mean, do we have any other sort of like, I mean, the Kanye thing was rather shocking. I think there's probably like more to that. I think it makes me nervous for Kirsten as an adult. I'm nervous. I'm a bit like, scared. I, I think there's going to be a spelling bee where you know, like her friend Anna is robbed, like Amos Axel or something like that, or someone else is like getting ready to get an award. And she's like, I need to step in. Does Amos gonna- get up and, and spell, will you marry me to Miss Winston? <laughs> he tries. He oh fails. my God, I would love that. I would absolutely love that. Kirsten's like, I'm going to let you finish, but first. <gasps> I would love that. What if she's actually like out on the outside Taylor Swift on the inside Kanye? So actually, someone did message us this week and said, I think there's a lot of Taylor vibes here with the hair, with the presentation of self. And I said, I can't disagree. I think that could be true. I think that actually could be true in the sense that I think Taylor Swift contains multitudes in a way. Mm -hmm. I think also we're seeing that Kirsten does have a lot of different, um, you know, she's different people to different people. She's one person with Singing Bird. She's a different person with her mom. She's a different person with her cousins, different person with Miss Winston. Taylor Swift, you might argue, also is very good at presenting or or curating versions of herself for different venues and and audiences. I will say that what's happening with her record label is wrong, even though I have said critical things of her in the past, which I maintain it is a shady business deal, and I'm not thrilled to see a woman artist treated that way. No. 
she deserves better in that regard. Yeah, because it's kind of a signpost that if someone with this much power and prestige can be treated this way, um, what does it mean? You know, in any of these cases, if ever someone who's super famous or successful is treated badly, my first instinct is always to say like, oh, poor them, like they're a millionaire, who cares? But sometimes I do take a beat and think, okay, actually, this is actually meaningful in the sense that if someone with this much power and prestige is treated this way, imagine all the people without the privilege and access who have similar issues in their labor, probably pre-existing, that are not being addressed. So in a way, it's kind of like a mindfulness moment. Just while we're talking about labor, there's one last piece of this book that we haven't talked about that was really important to me, which was the barn raising. (sighs) Love that. You know, it's been a long time dream to go Amish undercover. And actually, I was thinking about that a lot, reading the barn raising. Like, I would love to go to one. I circled that part and I put, this is a dream. And then I also put one more word, which I think you will understand immediately. I put witness. In a way, like our rumspringa would be going to an Amish community for a barn raising. Yeah. Okay. So I also feel like part of why that would make me feel comfortable is in the way that that's represented in the film witness, which stars Harrison Ford and is wonderful. Very good. But also in the way that life is represented here, there is such an intense like segregation along gender lines, right? Like people have exact roles and that's what they do. I do also appreciate that while all this heavy manual labor is happening with the construction of the barn, it's finally Kirsten's play day. Like that was very fascinating to me actually, because the other women are still supporting the mother by kind of helping her with domestic labor. It's very much like like what we've talked about with Felicity, like the women have encircled her and then it's like, okay, this task is happening, but because everyone is together, we can support Kirsten to have a fun day. Yeah. I really liked it. It was kind of, it is a fascinating dichotomy, but it's also interesting too, that the gift she gets like, the mom gives her an apron that she says is for dress up. So yeah. you kind of have to wonder, like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. um, I actually put a big question mark next to that because I was like, I have neither a dress up nor a dress down apron. Yeah. <laughs> True. Preach. Same. Yeah, that that was interesting where it's kind of like everything can stop because of this. And they sort of even like kind of corral activities like we're all going to make daisy chains and like a flower crown. And somebody bakes a heart-shaped cake at some point. It seems like it's the mom, but it's hard to believe that that's happening in her condition. I think that's the aunt. I think that's her strength. Okay. All right. That makes me feel a bit better. There when you need her. Like, literally, the mom is, like, on the verge, and everyone's like, oh, like, where's the aunt? And she's can't be found. But also that birth narrative was really weird, where it's like, her water never breaks. She's just, or maybe it did, and she just doesn't, we don't get that info. Instead, no. like, we're thrown in, like, possibly hours into this labor. So for us, it's like, panic at the disco. Like, <laughs> get on the horse. It's time. It's it's wild, but it also reminds me of like a lot of 80s, 90s TV shows and books that always use this as a trope of like woman's going to have a baby at a, like in like inappropriate time or like inconvenient time. Like Zach Morris having to deliver Mr. Belding's yeah. wife's baby in an elevator. It's like, how am I not supposed to think of that? I also couldn't help but think that there really wasn't like I can't really think of an alternative narrative for her that's that much more comfortable. That's that is what's challenging is that there isn't really a feel good birth story that's possible. 
except to literally hide us away. Like we go with Kirsten, like when the aunt actually comes back, what's fascinating is the way it's written is when Kirsten gets her aunt and her dad to come back and tend to her mother, she is kept out of the house. And in fact, we're like, go play in the fields and we go with her. So we have no idea what's going on in that room. And it's like, I'm not complaining. I don't need to know the gory details, (laughs) but it's interesting that in this book that's about that's predicting that girls will go into the roles that their mothers have before them. This is a if arguably the central role and it's completely erased to us. Not that I would expect a book for 9-year-olds to have a graphic description of childbirth, but Don't in some it. ways like to even bring us in the room and and have like not a description of the act but of kind of how the adults are responding or what's going on. We are completely absolved of that. Like it's not our responsibility. We're not there. True. I was relieved. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I don't want to know about that, but it actually did bum me out when it had that sentence in the back about it was way more dangerous to have babies in 1854 than it is now. Because, of course, if you study maternal death rates, the United States actually has a shocking high not to bum anybody out. And if somebody out there is pregnant, I do not want to trigger you at all, but I'm sure you will be fine. But it is kind of disheartening that we live in like one of the most affluent countries in the world. And yet actually the maternal death rate has only increased since I believe 1997. It was in some stasis and then it's since then has gone up. And I think about all the coverage of Serena Williams birth because women of color, of course, have higher rates. It's just, I'm not trying to bomb you on. I'm just saying like, that's no, what I thought no. about. No, I mean, I was also thinking of Serena Williams. And I think, again, this is where like, if this were in a, a, a book for adults or where, you know, moving away from that generalization matters or is useful. If you were to look at that by different demographics or ethnicities, we've talked about this previously with midwives. There are certain social groups for whom it would have been safer in the 1850s than, say, the 1870s or 1890s because they would have been cared for by really skilled female practitioners. Then if those same groups were to move into hospitals, the rates of infection would be much worse. Remember, nobody had a clue why what happened to Marta happened to her. So if you also look across time periods, there are certain social groups that aren't believed, aren't listened to, aren't cared for at the same level. And that's where you see those consistently high morbidity rates. And I Mm -hmm. do feel like the way that Serena Williams took control of her own story and like we're saying explained it as being part of a larger public health crisis was something she shouldn't have been expected to do but I think people are glad she did 100% because so much of her experience stemmed from not being believed when she mm-hmm. reported specific symptoms that were signs of complications she would report them and doctors would dismiss them out of hand largely because of the color of her skin and and she reports that and as you say took control of her story and that's a really powerful and important thing but also a really sad thing that has to happen now yeah I mean I hate to end this episode on a bummer I don't want to no I mean in the next book we get a bear I think (gasps) okay see that's the only thing I remember from these books I remembered the bear like that's I remember the crown of candles and a bear yeah yeah um I will also note that Kirsten was born on best friends day which is lovely that's great that's awesome yeah (laughs) <laughs> Except her best um, friend is who? Um, missing in action, I think. Wow. Are we going to see Singing Bird again? I think we are. And we've gotten a lot of important feedback from listeners that we can circle around to where we can talk a bit more about that. I would be remiss if I didn't mention all of Kirsten's books are available on archive.org for free. That is awesome. 
And I mentioned that because people have messaged us about it, which is great and important, and it's a good reminder. We should mention it more often because a lot of people want to just look at pictures or they want to follow along with us, and you can do that free of charge at archive.org. Right. And I think, too, with that with the formats on archive.org, if you have certain accessibility requirements, those copies might be a better match for you. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something else that's really important to keep in mind. So, yeah, I can't wait to see where this is all going. Same. Now, if people want to message you about different interpretations of Jolene, about their favorite blankets, about Winona, like where do they find you? First, I just want to acknowledge and thank everyone who's been contacting me during this difficult period of time. So true. As we've lost Bebe, the panda from the Washington, D.C. zoo. I've been following this. I'm heartbroken. We keep losing. I keep falling in love with these baby pandas. We keep losing them. I I don't know what to do. So thank you for reaching out. Please continue to do so. We we both genuinely love hearing from you. My mm-hmm. you can find me on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123 and on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. Now, Allison, if people wanted to reach out to you and and feel comforted in knowing that by doing so, you're not going to do the equivalent of denying the call, <laughs> where might yes. they find you for hot takes on quilting, on hair wreaths, on anything? Um, I'm at Allison Horrocks on both Twitter and Instagram. And we love to hear from you on the Instagram for American Girls Pod. You can also reach us on Twitter at Pod. And if you aren't sure whether we have seen that photo of Samantha and the AirPods, we have, but we love to hear your thoughts on it. You can also call our hotline by visiting our website where you can find the telephone number, um, American Girls Podcast, and you can write to us at American Girls Pod at Gmail. So, so many different ways to get in touch with us. I mean, a friendship quilt, I guess, isn't one of them for now, but we're open to it. Very open to it. Love that. Love that for us. <laughs> um, and so concludes How to Make an American Podcast. <laughs> One owner forever. Thank you for listening. <laughs>